Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Don't be upset by a northern bloke. Ronaldo, he looked at me, smiled, and he'd never done it again. What's in there, Mickey? He went, oh, that's about 300 grand in there, kid. If I'm on the opposite end of an argument, Piers Morgan, that's a very comfortable position that I'm happy to be in. I think I'd be up there with one of the most irritating cricketers. Tom, we were getting on so well until that question. <laughs> you boys are going to get absolutely hammered. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic teenagers who interview some of the biggest names within the world of sport. From world champions, World Cup winners, international athletes, Ryder Cup golfers, Ashes heroes and many other sportsmen and women, we delve deep into their sporting career, the highs and the lows and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. But that's enough for me, I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, Tom and Avatar, who host the podcast, and I'll let them introduce today's guest. See you later. Hello, and welcome back to the TWS Sports Podcast, and welcome to Season 3. Um, Adam, are you excited for Season 3? Really looking forward to Season 3, actually. I think Season 3 is going to be our biggest and best yet. Tom, would you would you agree? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree um, solely on that as well, and um, can't wait for more to come. After you, this is your second season now because you yeah. joined us in season two, didn't you? Yeah. Are you looking forward to a brand new season of the TWS Sports Podcast? Um, yes, I will. I have to get tried everything that season's coming up, actually. I can't wait. Really can't wait. What are you looking forward to most about this season, Tom? Um, probably like um, all the, the amount of different people that we get to talk to. And then... Also, uh, what surprises and then banter we would do along the way. Yeah, so we've actually we've recorded quite a few episodes already of season three, haven't we? So we've got lots of episodes for you. We're going to be in the process of interviewing more guests over the coming weeks. So we hope you enjoy season three and we will crack on with today's episode. Tenorwood School is a school for autistic children and young adults. And we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women 
from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a rugby legend. He coached England to World Cup glory in 2003 and was knighted by the Queen in 2004. Welcome to the podcast, Sir Clive Woodward. Thanks, Tom. Very great pleasure to be talking to you both. It's a pleasure to talk to you too. We like to start our podcast up with some quickfire questions before we talk about your career. Are you ready? I'll do my best. If you could go back to one year in your life, what would it be and why? From a sporting point of view? Yes. Oh, definitely 2003 with the England rugby team. I was you know, lucky enough to be the coach of the rugby team for... Um, Seven years from '97 to so '96 through to 2003, um, and 2003 was just a magic year. It, 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 we, we, and we obviously won the World Cup in 2003. But it was that it was that whole year. We never lost a game of rugby in the whole 12 months. And as the whole year grew uh, after, it was just really the end of it was the World Cup. And we knew as we got we got better and better, and we won the Grand Slam. We, we, we never lost a game throughout the whole year. I think we played 14, won 14, going into the World Cup. You just suddenly this huge excitement because you knew we had a real chance. You know, we went to Australia. We're number one ranked team in the world. We're favourites to win the World Cup. So that was quite scary stuff because it's kind of, you know, sometimes you kind of many you, you don't wish this, but you kind of prefer sometimes not to be favourites. But to go to Australia's favourites, I'm sort of looking back with that was just magic and favourites tend tend to win. So, and then we got the job done. And you know, after we we won the World Cup and Johnny Wilkinson's drop goal and all that, it was. Just a massive relief. I mean, I was, wasn't quite sure how I would have turned out if we'd not won that game. It wasn't would have been easy. It would have been very tough to lose that game because of been so much hard work and we had this amazing, amazing year. So, yeah, that would be the one year I'd, I'd love to repeat because you know, knowing there was a happy ending. But as we went through it, it was just amazing time with amazing bunch of players and a great, a great coaching team. Born in Cambridgeshire in 1956. Am I right in saying that you had quite a military upbringing? Yeah, totally. My dad was in the Air Force. If you look at my birth certificate, I was actually born in a caravan in uh, just on a, on, a, on a caravan site just outside an Air Force base in Cambridgeshire near Ely. And um, my, my time, my dad was a, a trainee pilot. And I spent all my time as a child just moving around because in those days you from, you went from Air Force Base to Air Force Base. We had a small time in Aden, which is near, in Saudi Arabia, down, down that part of the world. Uh, we spent most of the time in Yorkshire. We had three postings in Yorkshire. Um, we were at RAF Linton on Ouse, RAF Church Fenton, RAF Tadcaster. So a lot of my kind of early years was brought up in York, Yorkshire. There's probably a bit of a Yorkshire accent if I really try and put it on. But uh, that was where I first kind of grew up. But yeah, and, and my sister married... Uh, 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 a helicopter pilot who, was, who, who she met through my dad. So, yeah, so my whole background was a very military background in terms of my my, my, my uh, upbringing. And also got sent to this school called HMS Conway, which is a, a merchant Navy boarding school, which is a pretty tough place. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, it was a very much a, a military-based education. You made your England debut in January 1980. What was it like to make your England debut? Yeah, again, it was 1980. The, the, the game was amateur then. It's, it's, it seems a long time ago. It's not that long ago. So, you know, I play. I played for England, but it was, you know, I, I literally did it for fun. You know, I played. My first cap was in 1980 against Ireland. I was on the bench, uh, and in those days, there was no substitutions. You had to, someone had to be injured, 
if someone was injured and literally carried off, you you got on and uh, this guy called Tony Bond broke his leg. And I was in the stand just watching the watching this game and Bondy broke his leg and was carried off on the stretcher and suddenly realized I was going to be, could come on. And that was against Ireland, and that was my, my first cap for England. And then the next four games, we won all we won all those games, we won the Grand Slam. So my first four games for England was were Grand Slam. But yeah, it was amazing. Twickenham was Twickenham. It was just like it is today. It was completely, it was like 75,000 people. So you, you're playing in front of 75,000 people. But on Monday morning, you're going back to work. And it's just a very amateur, amateur game. But it was just an amazing experience. I kind of loved it. And we that, that that year, we had a great team as well. So England won, won all, all, their, all their matches. But, you know, it was a real, you never forget it. It was a real special moment running out and playing. It was a bit surreal actually coming on a sub. You kind of, yeah, everyone's a clapping you and you're running on your own. But it was a, a good team and it was a fantastic experience. You then toured with British and Irish Lions in 1980 and 1983. Yeah. What were those tours like for you and what are your memories of them? Yeah, it was great. The Lions is a really important sort of um, part of rugby. They tour every uh, three or four years. So in, say, 1980, I'd only played for England four or five times, but we'd won every game and I'd played pretty well. So I got picked on the 1980 Tour to South Africa, which was amazing. You know, I was just a young guy, um, only played a few games for England, and then suddenly I picked the British and Irish Lions. And that's the best pick from all four countries. So it's the best players from Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and obviously uh, in England. So to get picked, and they, they only took 30 players in those days. So they took about two, you know, two, two players per, per position. So to get picked on that was amazing. So then suddenly I found myself in South Africa, which is a tough old place to go and play rugby. We lost the Test Series 3-1, but it was just a magnificent experience to go as again as an amateur and have actually two, two, two and a half months where you are playing rugby all the time, you are training all the time. You know, I was lucky enough because Rank Xerox let me go. They, they paid my wages while I was, whilst I was away. So if they would not done that, they are not looked after me. I couldn't, couldn't have gone because you don't get paid on the lines either. There's no money involved. You you go for fun. But it's, it's, you're looking back now, it's hard to explain. You, you, you go for fun, but there's 80,000 people at Ellis Park watching you play. You're not getting paid a penny. Um, but it was great. South Africa is a wonderful country. It was interesting at the time, the apartheid regime was still in place. So it was quite interesting going. And you know, I remember I played against a, a black player called Errol Tobias. And I made a point of making a big friend of him because it was awful what we saw out there in terms of, you know, whites only beaches, blacks only beaches, and some of the stuff you couldn't believe. But it, I still think it was right to go there because we could question it, argue against it, you know, talk to Errol Tobias about it and come back and not condone it at all. But it, it was the, the, the apartheid reign, reign was was in in place in South Africa and it was awful. It was horrible. It's it just great that South Africa has moved on so much once once Nelson Mandela got, got in charge. The tour to New Zealand again, it was, you know, if there's one place, the toughest place to go and play rugby is New Zealand. There's no doubt about that. South Africa's pretty tough. But if you want to test yourself, go to New Zealand because it's, it's more than a game over there. But again, it was, Great to be picked in 83, so I was picked again. So I went on two Lions tours um, and just great experiences because it's, it's great you, you you do play with the best players in the other countries. So you make, you know, it's a common saying, friends for life. You, you generally do. I, I certainly played with this guy called Ray Gravel, uh, who unfortunately passed away recently. Uh, he was a Welsh centre and I got to know him really well. And before that tour, we were like mortal enemies. I'd play England-Wales, I was playing against Gravel. That was a big matchup for me, and there was no love lost. But then you got the Lions tour again, ended up sharing a room together. You ended up being really good, good friends forever. So the Lions is a, is a magic um, club. 
And it's just good that it's carried on being very, very strong, even since game went professional. We're still got a, a major role to play in the game of rugby union. You then moved to, to coach. How do you find the move from from playing to coaching? Uh, Avatar, it's quite a it's quite an easy step for me because I said before my, my job was working for Rank Xerox, but I went to Loughborough University. So my degree was in sports science. And then I did a one-year teacher training course, uh, which so I was at Loughborough for four years. So I'm a fully qualified teacher. And when you think of a, um, a PE teacher, that's a coach. There's no difference between being a teacher at school and being a coach. So I didn't go into teaching purely because the game was amateur and I was playing for England. And like I couldn't I couldn't play for England unless someone's going to pay my wages. And the education system would, wouldn't do that. So hence Xerox was great for me. You know, I worked hard for Rank Xerox, but they also looked after me when I needed time off to play for England and the actual Lions. Um, so when I finished playing, um, I started coaching and I just started coaching locally. The game was still amateur and I loved it because I'm a teacher. My, my, my profession, my kind of passion, my love is, is was teaching PE and coaching. And so I started coaching um, just the local team called Henley, which is close to where I live. And I really started to enjoy it. And, you know, again, it was amateur. We just, co- we just played. So we just trained twice a week, Tuesday, Thursday nights, played Saturday. Uh, so I went into coaching and then the game went professional in 1996 and I was coaching Henley as, for fun, for an amateur. I was coaching the England under-21 team. Again, for no money, I was doing it for fun. I was running my own business by then. And then the game went professional, and suddenly you could get paid for, for coaching. And um, I was very, very lucky. I was then chosen as the first full-time professional coach for, for the rugby for the England team in 1997. And that was a big, complete life-changer for me because I had to leave my business and take on you know the kind of quite risky role of being the first ever full-time rugby coach for the for the national team and but you know I, I kind of loved it because it allowed it allowed me to do in rugby what I couldn't do as a player it, the game wasn't professional as a player but now as a coach it was professional I was able to put every ounce of my effort every second of my day into into trying to be a good coach and trying to make England England um, successful so again I was just kind of got 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 lucky and um, you know, hopefully made the most of my luck. How did you find it when you first took the England job? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was very strange to be honest because you know it was the game went professional and nobody in rugby was kind of ready for this. It was kind of all very new. It was new for the players. It was new for the coaches. It was new for people at, at Twickenham because they just weren't used to having full time people around. So it was quite strange. You know, I went to Twickenham. We, we, no one's quite sure what to do. It sounds very strange looking back, but in, in many ways it was great because it was the proverbial blank piece of paper. Meaning, because I was the first professional coach, I could now come in and set the kind of standards what we're going to actually do. And I think, you know, being involved in business uh, before getting the job helped a lot because I was used to managing people. I was used to kind of reporting to to, to the board at Twickenham. And, you know, we, we just threw the kitchen sink at this. And, you know, I'd always said England were the great amateurs because we were amateur. There was no shortcuts to this. We were very amateur. I didn't get paid a penny as a player. I didn't get paid penny as an amateur coach. But when the game goes professional, you know, we had more players, more coaches than anybody else. We had more money in the game because of Twickenham and 80,000 people watching the game. So there was no excuses. And now it might be my opportunity to kind of put up or shut up, you know, and say, great, well, hang on. I've always kind of not moaned, but was always regretted the game was amateur because I loved to be professional. Now I am professional coach. I could throw the kitchen sink at it, which I, which I kind of did. And, when you, when you do that, you, you kind of make mistakes, you do some good things, you do some bad things. 
but I just threw everything at it and I loved it. It was just one of the great moments, a great time of my life where I could really build something from scratch and, you know, say seven years later, someone had told me in 97 that England would win the World Cup in 2003. I, I wouldn't have believed them. We had a huge turnaround in the fortunes of the team and 2003 was the culmination of that six years hard work. What did you want to change with the England setup when you first arrived? We read in an interview that Martin Johnson did that. He said that you had brilliant ideas and a few strange ones. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I, uh, I mean, Martin Johnson is, a, is an amazing player and an amazing guy, and he was the captain of the team. And what I liked about Jono was, I mean, that was my job. My, my job was to try and take England to a whole new level. And to do that, you've got to take some risks. And when I take risks, you've got to do things maybe a bit, bit different. And sometimes, and I would always share them with him. I didn't need his approval to do them, but I wanted to know what he was thinking. And sometimes, sometimes he'd normally just shake his head sometimes and go, okay, let's get on with it. And that's all I wanted him to say. I said, all I want you to do is just get on with it. Well, let's find out whether it's going to work or not. And we did some pretty pretty radical things if by, all, by all standards in those days. But the number one thing, and it was, was we had to get the become the fittest team in the world. You know, in most sports, you think of sports on the TV, even from Lewis Hamilton at the weekend, these guys are so fit. And I didn't think the rugby team was anywhere near fit enough because I'd been at Loughborough. I'd seen what professional athletes looked like and trained like who were in professional sports. Now rugby is professional. We had to take the, 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 the training of the team to a whole new level. The number one thing, could you get physically fit? And that was quite complex because rugby... As you know, it's played the, the one of the big great things about rugby it is played by all different shapes and sizes. You know, the the fitness program for a prop will be very different from the fitness program for a for scrum half. So we had to have personalized programs. And these, you know, um these are 24-7, 365. You have to trust the players to be doing this because you can't be with them all, all the time. But we undoubtedly over, and this takes time also when you're putting in fit, fitness plans. This take this takes time. So the number one thing, we had to become the fittest team in the world. You know, the, our first World Cup was in 99, and we weren't. And we got blown away. We lost in the semi-final to South Africa by a huge score because we just were nowhere near fit enough. By 2003, without any shadow of a doubt, every individual player was the fittest player in his position. And we spent a huge amount of time, effort, money, knowledge, being all the expertise that's in the UK to making sure these players were fit. Once you're fit, you can then take the game to a whole new level. When I say fit, I mean the ability to run for, eight, for 80 minutes. We were physically strong but we were aerobically strong we could run we like marathon runners because you've got to be run teams off off their feet and that's what we we're able to do so that was the first thing we put in place and hence all my background in, in my, my degree from Loughborough started to come in all my degree in sports science and physiology and all this stuff that I trained for I was suddenly all these years later given the opportunity to put in place a professional team and the players are magnificent Johnson you know he doesn't speak he doesn't he's not, he's not a man of many words but he just said, let's just get on with it. Let's get on with it. We trust you and wait put in place. And I, I'd say, Tom, I was nine out of 10 in terms of things that worked. Every now and then there was probably a spectacular failure, which you just got to put, you know, put to one side. But we didn't want to just say, if only, I don't want to be talking to you all these years later, if only we'd done that, if only we'd done that. The key thing, if it makes sense, get on and do it. Then when you're doing it, decide, is this working or not working? And then don't be scared of saying, this is not work, stop it. And don't be kind of embarrassed by thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't we shouldn't have done that. But it's a great team with some brilliant players, you know, from Jason Robinson to Martin Johnson to Delalio. But the, the 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 they were great players, but their biggest strength was their mind that they wanted to try new things, test themselves, try and because they they knew like me, the one thing I could say to them, 
you only get one chance of this. This will go very, very quickly. You're not here for a long time. You've been a professional rugby player, especially playing for England. So let's throw the kitchen sink of this and let's look back when it's over and look and have no regrets about, about anything, even the things we may have got wrong. The Henshaw's Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace in mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance and we offer a free, no obligation, consultations and quotations. So give us a call today. You took England to the 1999 World Cup. What are your memories of that tournament? Uh, not a lot, Tom, to be fair, because we got smashed and beat, so I kind of forget those sort of days. Um, <laughs> in all seriousness, the the, the one game I, I, I'd never forget, it's funny, you, you, you obviously remember winning games, but I, I, I remember the games we lose more than the games we won. And we played uh, South Africa in the quarterfinals in Paris. And we had to play on the Wednesday. We had to then go by train. And this was how the game has moved on. You, you wouldn't do it today. We played Wednesday at Twickenham in a, a I think it's Fiji we had to play. We beat them. So literally Saturday, we're playing in, in Paris. So we're on a train on Thursday. We had no time to train because we're, we're on a train in, in the tunnel, you know, getting across the Eurostar. And we played on the, on the Saturday in South Africa. We'd been there a week, a week um, waiting for us. And, you know, we just weren't ready. We had a great team. Look, the, the team on paper was, you know, Martin Johnson, Delahalia, they're all there. The same guys who won the World Cup four years later. Most of them were in that team that lost in 99. But we just weren't prepared. We weren't physically fit enough. We weren't strong enough. And then number 10 was a guy called Gianni De Beer dropped five goals. And when you watch these five drop goals, you don't, you know, you don't get many teams to score five drop goals in an international game. These weren't in front of the post. He's dropping these goals from halfway line. And you're just hopeless. You're, you're just helpless because you can't stop this, a drop goal. So they started to get the lead and we, and we lost the game. And there's, you know, there's absolutely, South Africa deserved to win. We were, we could have played that game a hundred times. We've lost a hundred times. We, we were not ready. And that, you know, I came back from that and it was good because that was the moment we lost. And they go, okay, we, we know where we are. And I just said, we, we've now got, and we would, we'd already started the journey. We're, we're getting stronger, we're getting fitter. But it's just quite ironic that four years later in, in, in the World Cup in Australia, we played South Africa in the pool game. So we're back to playing these guys again, who are an amazing team, you know, who won the, world, the last World Cup. And we absolutely annihilated them in, the, in a pool game. So in four years, we just completely turned this whole thing around where we got smashed. Four years later, we're, just, we're, we're a far better team than them on and off the pitch. Um, after the 1999 World Cup, England made some great progress. What changed during this period to have such a big improvement? I don't think anything dramatically changed because I said we, I started in the end of 97. So literally it was about 18 months for that first World Cup. And as I said, we, you could just see, we, did we deserve to win? No, we didn't. We didn't deserve to win the World Cup. We're, we're ranked number six in the world. That was about right. You know, we were still, you know, scrapping with Wales and France and Scotland. We were nowhere near as good as South Africa, Australia or the All Blacks. So the three Hudson Hammer teams were way ahead of us, but we were, we were catching them up. We didn't start in 99. We, we were starting in 97 and we were catching them up. In 99, we were still, be, they, they were there, we were here. But then what happened over the next four years, we, we went past them. There's no doubt. The record between those World Cups of 99 to 2003 
Um, I, th- I think we, we played like 50 games and lost four. I mean, it's the most astonishing success of any English team, that's not a rugby team. And we never lost to the Southern Hemisphere team in that in that period of time. So by the time the 2003 World Cup team came around, we were the number one ranked team in the world. And everyone knew to win a World Cup, they've got to be England, which was a lot of pressure because, you know, you, you, you've got there, but you've now got to deliver the final blow and try and win the World Cup. So we didn't change at 99, Tom. It had already changed in 97. But this does take time in terms of the, just, just the power, the skill, the athleticism of the team, because it's still an individual. It's, it's obviously rugby union is a great team sport, but still a very individual sport because it's very position specific. We had to make sure every player was good enough to win a World Cup. And that was individual programs, doing a lot of creative stuff in terms of the training and the skills. You know, but we, we got the job done. And you know, thank goodness we, we, we got home in 2003 just, you know, it wasn't, we didn't hammer Australia in the final when he just got home. But it started from the moment I walked, it started the moment the game went professional in 95 or 96, whenever it was. And that's when it really started. And England, you know, started to just catch up, catch up, catch up, because we could become t- totally professional in terms of what we actually did. So we've got some really exciting news for the TWS Sports Podcast. We've been shortlisted for a Sports Podcast Award, which is absolutely incredible opportunity for the podcast. So the Sports Podcast Awards are recognised globally. If you have a sports podcast, you can enter, and there are hundreds of thousands of sports podcasts around the world. And over Christmas, the judges shortlisted us to the final eight. So we are in the best equality and social impact category. We're up against some great podcasts from the BBC. There's one about the Olympics, and there's lots of other fantastic podcasts. And it's down to the public to vote for a winner. So we really need you to vote for us if you can. If you just go on www.sportspodcastawards.com and then look into the best equality and social impact category, and please, please, please drop TWS Sports Podcast a vote. We'd really, really appreciate it. Tom, come to you first. How do you feel being shortlisted for, for such an award? Well, I'm very grateful for it. And I think it's an achievement for all of us um, to go hit that milestone, really. So, And also, uh, like already mentioned, please make sure to vote, everyone. It is so just an incredible achievement for a small special school in, in England to be shortlisted for an award against these huge TV corporations and, and huge other podcasts such as the Olympics and the BBC. Just incredible. So we really, really need all our listeners to vote. Please tell your friends and your families and your colleagues to vote as well. It's really simple to do. So just head to www.sportspodcastawards.com, register, search for the best equality and social impact category. It does only take one, two minutes and really, really appreciate your vote. After I come to you, what? how do you feel about being shortlisted for this award? Um, actually, um, that award we give us, like, um, we try everything we want, like me, Watkins, Adam, we supported to, like, uh, the award um, ceremony because, um, yeah, we've done, uh, we're proud of us, everyone, we're proud. Yeah, definitely. We are very proud. I'm, I'm very proud of you boys because it just shows how much your hard work and determination and skills have developed and how it's now been recognised by people globally, how how good the podcast that you host is. So it's down to you, you two boys and your hard work. So congratulations on your shortlisted boys. But we want to win, don't we? So please, please vote for us. And we'd really, really appreciate all your support. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. 
You then toured New Zealand and Australia and beat them both. This was the first time England has beaten the All Blacks in New Zealand for 30 years and the first time England had ever won in Australia. What are your memories of that tour? Yeah, great memories because, uh, Tom, that was the build-up to the World Cup. That was, that was in so the summer of 2003. And again, I took a bit of a risk. Well, I, I didn't see it as a risk because I took my full-strength team to Australia and New Zealand literally three months before the World Cup. And a lot of the kind of the experts on TV were saying, well, you know, if you get injuries now, you know, you, you're going to you're going to regret it because you, if you lose Martin Johnson, Johnny Wilkinson, someone gets hurt. And my mindset was the opposite. My mindset was, yes, well, I can take that on board. But I thought our squad was good enough. If there was an injury, we could cover for it, even with John, even Wilkinson. You know, we'd have a good, good players. But what my mindset was, if we can go to New Zealand and win and Australia and win, the whole world knows someone's got to be England in the World Cup in November 2003. And that's what happened. We didn't just go to New Zealand and win. We, we absolutely smashed New Zealand and Australia. And it was just, you know, at one stage, we only had 13 players on the pitch and we still won. So it was just a great time. But I, it was, it was, it, so this was the moment where, you know, it's okay winning these games, Tom, when you're at Twickenham. I think playing at home, I always think English should win when, when playing at Twickenham. But to go to Auckland and win, was, was that, it's actually not Auckland, it was Wellington we won in. To go to Wellington and New Zealand and win against the All Blacks, that was game-changing. And then to fly to New Zealand, uh, sorry, to Australia and beat them as well, where we've never beaten them ever in Australia, was amazing. So then we flew home and everyone knew, you could look, you just feel it, everyone knew, wow, this is a chance of a lifetime. We know we can beat the Southern Hemisphere teams, we know we can beat the Northern Hemisphere teams. For the first time, we've actually gone to New Zealand and Australia and won three months before the World Cup. And you can see, you know, we kind of put a lot of shockwaves through those countries because it wasn't just winning, it was the way we played. And as I say, someone's got to beat us. And, you know, favourites tend to win. So we arrived at favourites, which I was delighted about. We were number ranked team, number one ranked team in the world. But that those two games set up the World Cup. There's no doubt about it. The World Cup's are totally different because everyone arrives as a big one-off. You know, favourites can get beat. The pressure's huge. But to arrive having beaten those two two teams away from home, was, was just fantastic and I, I loved every minute of it. You must have very, <clears throat> very confident headed heading into the 2003 World Cup on the back of same great victories. Right. <clears throat> so you must have felt very confident, as you said, heading into the World Cup on the back of so many great victories. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was, we never lost that year uh, after and and w- winning becomes kind of, you know, infectious. You, you don't know how to lose, basically. And there were some games we didn't play that well, we still won. Um, but if you, you know, we, we, that, that, you asked me a question before about 2003. It wasn't just the World Cup. It was a whole year. We never lost a game. We won the Grand Slam, which was tough because Ireland were a very good team. We won the Grand Slam in, in Ireland, in Dublin. And to, to go and arrive at a World Cup without having lost a game, as I say, everyone knows you, you, you're, you're the team to beat. And that gives you a huge, huge amount of strength and confidence going into these games. And as I said, you know, I'd, I'd always want to go into any game as favourites because favourites tend, tend to actually win. And we've not lost a game for a long time. And that really is set up the World Cup. And, and then if you follow the World Cup in 2003 and some of the games we didn't play that well, but we still won. You know, and the, the key thing about those tournaments, just like a, a football World Cup, it's just just winning. It doesn't matter how you win. You just got to go on the pitch nil-nil and come off the pitch with more points than them and play on the next game. You don't, you don't kind of, 
worry too much about your performance. You just got to win and move on to the next game. And that's what we're able to do. You had a very successful group stage of the World Cup. During the World Cup, you and the players must have had a lot of downtime. What did you all do when you were not playing or training? Yeah, I think downtime, downtown, downtown, downtime is a, a really important skill in being a professional sportsman. It's not just rugby players. You know, a lot of professional sportsmen have a certain amount of downtime and you've got to know how to handle that. And it's managing your time pro- properly. Um, and yeah, we, we did we did all, all sorts of things, but you, you don't need to actually um, do anything differently you normally actually do. You know, the players have a lot of downtime when they're professional sportsmen back in the back in the in the UK. And you know, we we just did, you know, just normal, normal things, you know, wandering down the shops for cups of coffee, chatting to people, um, playing the odd nine holes of golf, you know, when you've got a buggy, so you're not walking around tying yourself with, with golf. But just having some downtime. We were the team room is an important room. There's always movies that are being played in there. That's always some stuff going on. But really what you actually want the players to do, and this sounds so obvious, is just to rest. You need them to go to your room, put your feet up, read a book, have a snooze, have a sleep. And But they're used to doing that. Part of being a professional sportsman is about recovery. And you can't be, you know, if you train hard, which we did, you've got to recover, which is all about literally going to your room, rest, eating really well, drinking really well in terms of hydration. Um, and just doing all the basics really well, but you want them just resting. And I, I, I promise you, you've, I've, I've never known, known a player worry about his downtime. They they fill it very comfortably and easy to do. But from our point of view, fundamentally outside doing a few activities, we want them with a the feet up, watching the telly, just resting, waiting for the game and preparing to explode on Saturday or whenever the actual game is. You beat Wales and France in the knockout stages of the World Cup and played Australia in the final. What were your preparations like for the final and were you confident of being Australia in Sydney? Yeah, we're, we're very confident because we'd beaten them, as I said before, in Melbourne a few months before. And that last week was one of the lightest training weeks I've ever had. We were fit. We were ready to go. What you could do is lose the game on the training pitch, meaning you could overtrain. So we literally had, a, you know, in that week, because we, we beat France in the semi-final, I think we played Sunday, so we, had, we only had six days to turn around. So we would have had a full day off on Monday. Then on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we had a, we had sessions, but there would be a maximum an hour. We never even put, put our boots on. We just walked around the pitch in our tracksuits and trainers, just walking through moves and, and just visualising what was going to go on. So again, we only put training in just to, to actually fill in some time. We knew what was going to happen. We knew, we knew how we were going to play. We didn't have to train very hard. And we just literally walked through, did a few lineouts, a few scrums, not, not big scrums, just set up, just walked through and just get mentally prepared for the picture. And it was the largest training we've ever, we've ever had. And even, even then, some of the players came up to me and said, you know, this is very light. And I've gone, yeah, just, just trust us. You will explode Saturday night. You know, I, just, I don't want to leave this on the training paddock. So it had been very, very easy to do too much. Uh, and we actually, I went the other way. I, I, did, I did too little. I don't think I did too too little, but I wanted I wanted to be very conservative. And we just literally walked around and it was great. But we just and we only did that to to create some time, some some mental side of stuff. We had quite a few team meetings to discuss and plan things, but it was a very light session. But you know, I, I kind of, you know, as, as the game, you know, before the kickoff, I remember speaking to the coaches, you know, saying, right, would would you have done anything differently? And we all said no, we think we're in great shape. So it's you know, we had this saying, Tom, about 
if if everybody does their job properly, we should win this game. And that, and that was a really powerful statement to make, and I repeat it. You know, if every player and coach, me, does their job properly in this game against Australia, we should win the game. Because, you know, we thought we had a better team than them. We thought we were a better coaching team than them. So we just didn't, we, did, we just, just had to make sure everyone did their job properly. When I say that, you know, we, we, we don't want someone getting sent off. We don't want anything to do stupid. We don't want someone making, you know, just under pressure, not doing their job properly. And then Martin Johnson picked up the theme as well. Just, just do our job properly, win the game, go home. So that week was incredibly quiet, I promise you. There was no Churchillian speeches. It was just do your job properly and get prepared mentally, physically, and we should win this game. Unfortunately, that, that's how it turned out. So what was said in the dressing room before the game? Yeah, but again, very, very little. To be frank, what we what we did uh, after is we, we always have a big uh, flip chart board and we always, I always write three things up. These are our three final, final points. And we had these on the board and we just go through our normal, normal stuff. Honestly, the changing room was so quiet because also when you leave the changing room, there's probably still 10 minutes to go before the kickoff. Because you got, you know, you got, you get presented to all the dignitary. There's national anthems, you know. So it's not the time to go cr- crazy, or you know, you just got to get yourself mentally prepared. By that stage, we know we're, we're kicking off or receiving, so we're just we're just talking through what the starting positions are. Everyone was ready, and it just everyone's got to be really, really quiet, you know. And, and that's why these are great people. You you kind of see these movies, and you know, every given Sunday, and there's all these big speeches and people going crazy in the change room. That's not the reality of the, coach, the team I coached. Our team was very quiet, very measured. Everyone just been getting prepared for the kickoff, you know, because you can get over psyched and over, over kind of prepared for this. You just got to get ready for the for the start of the game. So the changing was very very quiet, and we just had those three points on the board. You know, I would have sat everyone down at some stage about ten minutes before and just go through them again. Right, everyone ready? Boom, boom, boom. Everyone ready? Go. Any questions? Everyone ready? Just just chatting to each other. Just a lot of small talk going on. Like, like this, like this space, just players talking to each other. It was fantastic. You know, I, you know, you look back now and you're hugely proud of what we actually did because it was so professional. Everyone stayed on message. And, and we kept saying, everyone do the job properly. Just focus on your own job. Everyone do their job properly. We'll win this game. And that's how it turned out. When the games kicked off as a coach, there isn't much you could do. Were you pleased? Were you pleased with how the first half went, and what did you say to the team at halftime? Yeah, no, as a, as a coach, Tom, there's a, there's a lot you can do. Um, you're actually, in, unlike football, you're not on the touchline. I mean, prefer, personally, I'd rather be on the touchline, be able to shout at people, but you're actually not. You can't do that in rugby. They put you in a a literally soundproof box right up in the stands. So I've got to pass my messages on through my mic through the physios on the side of the pitch. So there's a guy called Dave Redding. So any messages, I've read him to set the message on the speak to speak to the players. So you can you can do things, but also you 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 know you just got to watch what's going on. Sometimes you don't need to do anything. Everything's fine. But there's something obvious you need to change. You've got to get a message onto onto the pitch. Um and it's a lot there's a lot of stress going on in there as you as you can imagine. So you've got to know what you're actually doing. Um and you know you, you know you you know I've got to do my job properly. I've got to stay calm. I've got to watch what's going on. I'm really watching the referee a lot, how he's refereeing the game. I'm always thinking about doing, do we need to make any changes or substitutions, which I didn't need to do in the end. So looking looking back again, I was, you know, I was really pleased with my performance. After the game, you can analyze, you know, did I do make all the right calls? Did I make the right substitutions, get the right messages on? And I was pleased the way myself and the coaching team, and I've got a great team, Andy Robinson, Phil Lard, and the three of us worked together. 
I was really pleased the way we stayed quite calm because it was massive what was at stake here. This was huge. You, this was the biggest moment of your life. You'll never get this chance again. And you're either going to be, you know, you're either going to get a pat on the back or you're going to get shot. So it's, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot going on. And at, at half time, you know, we, were, we were winning quite well. I think it was 14 6, I think. And those, you know, again, we had the three points on the board. We changed those. I was happy with half time. Uh, it was the second half we didn't play that well, you know, um, for whatever reasons. But we you know, ended up drawing the day game going into it. You know, had to have, to have extra, extra time. But I, so I think we did the right thing at half time because things were going well. There's no, no need to change anything. It didn't change the team at all. Um, it was the second half where things went a bit wrong because the referee started to penalise us a lot in the scrum. And um, the rest is history, I guess. A draw in rugby doesn't happen very often. In the lead-up to the final, had you ever played for extra time? And if so, what was your plan? Yeah, no, you, you're right. In, well, there's lots of draws in rugby, Tom, but the, the draw and then the whistle goes, you draw. In the Six Nations, if it's a draw, it's a draw. And you share the points. So the only time there's extra time is in the World Cup where you need, you've got to have a winner. You can't draw a game. So in the knockout stages, someone's got to win. So... We were totally prepared for extra time, meaning there's going to be 30 minutes. We had a plan about what, what to do, how to actually ex- execute that plan. And we, we played this, this ex- the extra half really, really well. The second half of the game, we were not at our best and Australia deserved to catch us up and we didn't play very well in the second half of the, the game. But in the extra time, I thought we all our preparation was much better than theirs. You can see we knew what we are doing, knew tactically how to play the game based on what I'd always seen, but also how to how to win that game in extra time. And it is all about territory. You know, you've got to get you've got to get down the end of the pitch. There's ways of doing it. You don't want to be playing in your half of the field because there are opportunities to drop goals, kick penalties, obviously score tries. But you've got to win the territory battle. You've got to get down the end of the pitch. So we practice that time and time again. And again, you can just talk about that in the team rooms. You can talk about that in the changing rooms. But, you know, it's, there's nothing like it when it's actually reality happening. And I've never, ever coached a team in extra time, ever, in my whole life. So, you know, this is the biggest game of my life, and suddenly we've got extra time. But again, I was thinking, do we know what to do here? Yes, we had the right messages at full time on the pitch, and the players, you know, did a great job in that last last half hour of the game. And, you know, and I think there's only one winner in that last half hour, and that, that was obviously us in England. In the last minute of injury time, well concerned, 25 yards out, in front of the post with the scores tied at 17-17. How much courage did it take for Johnny to score that drop goal? And what are your memories of watching it go over the posts? I'm not sure courage is the right word, Tom. It, it was just sheer professionalism. Johnny Wilkinson is you know, my number one player as an example of hard work and training. Johnny practices, not in his, not in his kicking, every part of his game. He is the ultimate professional. So Johnny Wilkinson practices kicking at goal, but also drop goals all the time. Literally at times we've got to drag him off the pitch. He just, he's the hardest trainer, the hardest worker. So, you know, we knew on that moment in time, one minute to go, we're going to put, we're going to do a drop goal, but it's the, the whole team is involved, not just Johnny. So the whole team has got to set the move up to put him in position to win it and just see what he's doing. We all know it's happening. We've, we've done this for years and years and years. We've walked around restaurants walking through what we do, what every player does. And as I said before, I said before, but if everyone just does their job properly, just needs one player not to do their job properly in this moment of time, we give away penalty to Australia. We lose the World Cup, literally. So in that moment of time, everyone's got to do their job properly in order to set the position up 
for Johnny to drop the goal. But when he's in position, I'm on the touchline now. I've actually come down on the touchline. And I'm just literally, I won't say I'm smiling, but in, in, in his side, I'm going, we're going to do this. If there's one person in the world you want in this position, it's not the courage. It's just, you know, he's putting so much hard work. This is his moment. This will justify every ounce of effort he's done over the last, you know, since he's been a tiny boy to, 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 to win this thing. And he, he got the drop goal on his wrong foot. It wasn't his strongest foot, his right foot, but he practiced on both feet. He kicked stronger on his left, but it came to his right foot. And I just said, he's, he's, he's not going to miss this. And he, he didn't, he just put it straight to the middle of the pitch. And it was, it was, you know, it is courageous. You've got to have a lot of, but you know, you've got to be courageous to be on the pitch in the first place. But this was just a real, to me, to me it was, it was just a complete endorsement of, you know, we, when you say to any, anybody, you've got to work hard. At work, if you want to be successful, you've got to work hard. And they'd be the number one person in the whole world. There's no one else I'd rather have in that position. I'm just so glad he's English, wearing a white shirt. He wasn't an Australian guy. He's the one guy I'd want there to do it. And he deserved it. Then he deserves all the accolade, all the pats on the back, because it's not luck. It's not just because he's talented. Uh, it's because of how hard he works at it. And he's worked so, so hard. And for him to actually deliver that final kick was just everything he deserved. And it was just, it just amazing to be part of it. And also amazing to be his coach where you see what, how hard he works behind the, behind the scenes and how totally committed he is to actually being the best in the world. If Wilkinson had missed that kick, <laughs> were you making preparations for a penalty shootout and who would have been your five kickers? If Wilkinson had missed that kick, I'd have been moving house to somewhere probably, <laughs> probably in North Australia or Papua New Guinea somewhere. Um, one, I didn't think he would miss it, um, but if it had gone to extra extra time, yeah, we would then then the kickers, yeah, we'd we practice that. We it's going to be it's, it's pretty random because you've then got to choose five players to take this drop kick in front of the post. So we knew who those five players would be. But again, I think we would have still won. We, we had better kickers than, than than they did. We had the, probably the best kicking coach in the world, a guy called Dave Allred, who coaches Johnny, and he's been coaching the other, the other players. So yeah, I mean, if it if that had not gone over. And we'd not gone that. It would have gone into it would have gone to sudden death first. By the way, you go sudden death meaning the next person to score, and then it would have gone to these free kicks to goal. So it would never the chance we actually get in there would be tiny, but there was a chance. But were we prepared for that? Yes, but I, I you know, I didn't think we need to go to extra time, but it did. And we, as it was, we went to the last minute of extra time before we were able to get in position to actually put the drop goal in. I have a question for you. How did it feel to lift the World Cup? Yeah, fantastic, Avatar, because I, I'm very superstitious. And I think I said to all the players, and I first go, you know, you, you only touch the World Cup once you've won it. I've never touched the World Cup. I've been in the rooms where it's been in the room and people try and get pictures of you. With it. I never I never had a picture with the World Cup ever. I never touched it. I didn't want to be anywhere near it. So when you win it and you have to touch it, it was amazing. And, you know, we were all on, we all got presented by the Prime Minister of Australia and everyone got their World Cup medals and Johnson got the cup uh, and just amazing feeling. And so to get your hands on it, you just know for the next four years, it's yours and you are allowed to touch it. And I've often said that to every player. You, I'm just superstitious. Never touch it until you deserve to touch it. And, you know, so, so when, when it, you know, it's a beautiful cup also, the, the William Ellis Cup. It's, a, it's an amazing World Cup. And, you know, it was just, it was just, just an amazing feeling because it, it did kind of justify all the hard work that we'd all put in and that they're still part of it just thinking and there's good good question by tom just 
how I would have turned out if we'd not won the World Cup in that moment in time. And that's quite the scary thing about sport because you don't get a second chance. That was it. That was my, that was the moment. This one moment in time is either going to be, you know, and, and I, I, I honestly can't say to you how I would have turned out. I don't think I would have turned out to be probably a very nice person, to be brutally honest, because the disappointment would have been absolutely huge. But that's why we love sport, because you've got to put all, all, all on the line. So what if, what was it like then you were tired? You knighthood from the Queen. Do you do you, she said everything everything to you? Well, so the next the following year you received knighthood from the Queen. What was that like? And did you say anything to you? Yeah, look, it's fantastic. And you, I honestly don't know how you get a knighthood. You I don't you don't apply for it, put it that way. You literally get a letter in the post from the Queen going, we'd like to make you a knighthood. So it's it was great for my family. Uh for my, I've got three children and you know, they know how much work went into it. So it, it was, it was, yeah, it was amazing, but it was just a big endorsement for the whole of English rugby. I was just lucky enough to be the guy at the head of it and you, you get this thing called a knighthood, which means you do go to Buckingham Palace, you do meet the Queen. Um, she was fantastic. No, she, we had, a, we, had a, we had a few words about it. She obviously watched the game and um, uh, I don't know what, she, I can't remember what she said, but it's something about Johnny Wilkinson. Was he ever going to miss? It's a bit like talking to you guys. She was asking me the same questions. Mm. <laughs> what, what would happen if you'd missed? <laughs> so it was, it, was all, it was all good. But no, she was just fantastic. And uh, but they, they, they are. I, mean, I remember I got a, uh, a a telegram or text before the World Cup from her saying, "Good luck." You know, it's amazing the detail that comes through. There's things like that you don't forget. Where suddenly you're opening your your mail and your text, and suddenly you got your letter from the Queen just saying, "Good luck." You know, and, and like, oh, well, that, that's pressure. We got the Queen saying, "Good luck to you." So no, it was just great meeting for. So the biggest thing is not yourself; it's having your family there, and also you know a lot of the players all got awards as well, in from from the honors list. And it was just it was just great to be you know, honored. And it was a big thing for the country. It clearly was an amazing thing. The the bus trip around Trafalgar Square. There's millions of people on the streets. So it was, it was huge. And you didn't, I don't think we quite realized how big it was until after we'd actually won and things like that happened. But the Queen was fantastic, and it was just just lovely to meet her, obviously. You then had the honour of coaching the Lions team in 2005 against New Zealand. What are your memories of that tour? Yeah, it was, it was quite tough because um, we obviously went to New Zealand. We got beat. We, we lost. Um, um, I, I was I wasn't surprised. I, I think also, if, if I'm being brutally honest with you, you know, I didn't apply for the Lions job. The, they they contacted me. I, I guess looking back, I was the obvious choice. We'd won the World Cup. In 2003, um, I've as, as a coach, I always found the Lions kind of got got in the way of England because you know, every four years you get totally disrupted by the Lions, which I can understand because it's such a big institution and I'm a big fan of the Lions. But if if I, I never applied for the job, and I, I think if I had my time again, I would have probably said no to them. I'd have said no, you know, I, I think I'm not the right person because you know I'm I'm very English. I love coaching England, and this was a bit of a distraction where suddenly. I'm having to coach players that I've been trying to knock their heads off for three or four years. And, and also, you, you haven't got much time. You know, you, you literally all meet. And next, you know, two or three weeks later, you're playing against the All Blacks. And that's not my skill set. My skill set is all about planning, time, team building. We need a bit of time to get this done. So I think there's some people who are great Lions coaches. You know, Warren Gatlin's, you know, amazing Lions coach. Ian McGeekin is an amazing Lions coach. Because I think they've got the skill set to do things very quicker, a lot quicker. I think my skill set, I, I need a bit more time and mm -hmm. I, I'm probably quite, 
reserved in my own in my own way and almost almost I guess shy in many ways and it didn't kind of fit so listen I loved doing it it was a huge honor but we got we got beat you know and there's a great New Zealand team I had no bones about it and I could make all sorts of excuses then the day we got we got beat and you just got to cop it and move move on you've done everything you can I wouldn't do anything differently I did everything I possibly could to make the Lions successful but we got we got beat but you know when I look at it logically and I come up I'm quite a logical person you know you you're playing against the best team in the world you're playing away from home and on their pitches. You've got a scratch team, really. And, you know, you can still win, obviously, but the odds are stacked against you, as we saw this time in South Africa recently. So it was, you know, but you, am I glad I did it? Yes, because someone had to do it. And I would have felt guilty if someone else had done it and they'd got beat 4-0. But we lost the Test Series 4-0. Uh, the New Zealand team was amazing. But you just learn from it, you know. Uh, there was a great Nelson Mandela quote. You, you never... You never lose. You either you either win or you learn. You know, and I think that's a big big moment for me. You know, you never lose. You either win or you learn. So you know, we lost. And I learned a huge amount about myself about that. I became a better coach having gone through that experience of losing to losing to to uh, to to New Zealand. But the Lions are great, but they just they didn't quite fit into what I was doing with England at the time. And I guess the rest is history. What are you up to now? A good question. I do um, the, the biggest thing I do um, of interest. I, I, I run a couple of businesses, but I'm the director of sport of a ski academy in the south of France and teams called Apex 2100. <clears throat> and I got off this job about seven years ago. I've been doing it for seven years, and we built this ski academy. We spent a huge amount of money on a physical building. But this is an international ski academy. It's we've got some of the best skiers from all around the world. The youngest athlete there is 12. The oldest is 17. And you only get in your ability to ski. So it's, it's boys and girls. Um, and I've been doing that. And I want to try and you know, create gold medal winners at, at skiing through the, through the Ski Academy. So I spent a lot of time in the south of France, in, in Teen, uh, working this Ski Academy. Again, it's just a big, you know, I love, obviously love rugby, but I love skiing. I love golf. Um, and this this opportunity came, and I've been doing it for seven years now. And that's that's the main thing I'm doing now in terms of my, my professional sporting, sporting career. But I'm, and on the rugby front, the only thing I do in rugby is now is the media. I've worked for the Daily Mail and I do all the internationals for ITV when, 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 when we got them in the Six Nations and World Cup. So so it's good. So I spent a lot of time in France to answer your question. And I would say having lived a time in France now, France is going to be quite scary for the Rugby World Cup in, in a couple of years' time. They've got a really good team and they're playing at home. And I think home advantage in these situations is quite telling. So England have got to really step up to plate now if they're going to Catch, catch the French at the moment. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Clive. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Tom, Avatar, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Well done, you guys, for coming on and speaking like this. Brilliant. Really enjoyed it. So, boys, so Clive has just gone. What a fantastic episode. Tom, I'm going to come to you first. How do you feel the episode went? Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it personally. I thought I think it was uh, an honour to chat to Sir Clive Woodward and also to hear during the finals when they drew. So they drew an amazing final with Australia in Sydney and they won with the literally the last kick of the game when Johnny Wilkinson got the drop goal, which was an incredible final. So imagine being the coach of that being amazing. After, what about you? What was your... What did you enjoy about the podcast? Uh, the thing is, actually, um, I remember Cy Crockwell, he talked about his uh, childhood want to be a coach for England way 
back in time. And then he's uh, um, to uh, meet the queen. And then um, he's just a uh, queen, like, say, like, sir, his name, sir. Yes, so he got knighted by the queen, I think, the year after the, he won the World Cup. So that's an incredible honour, isn't it, to be knighted by the queen and, and to become a sir. So, yeah, fantastic episode, boys. You did really, really, really well. And just for our listeners who may not know, um, the BBC were in on that episode as well. So the BBC came and they, they filmed us doing that episode and it was on the BBC News over Christmas time, wasn't it? So a bit of extra pressure for you boys, but you coped and did really, really well. So congratulations, boys, on another fantastic episode. And remember to vote for us on the Sports Podcast Awards. Just Google or type in www.sportspodcastawards.com and search best equality and social impact category and please vote for the TWS Sports Podcast. Right, boys, congratulations on another fantastic podcast, another great episode. Well done, and we will see you all next week. See you next week. See you next week. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.